you don't know who has an immunosuppressed child at home or who's caring for elderly parents or who have other issues that complicate their health status. We have to be patient and empathetic and compassionate and deeply respectful of other people's needs and choices right now. Welcome to the Alcohol Edition Podcast. My name is Lee Davy. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol and I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same. Like right now, uh, my guest on the show for the second week running and the third time altogether, which makes her the most popular person on the Alcohol Edition Podcast, is Lisa Dinhofer, the crisis tamer and strive coach. Uh, the reason I got Lisa back on again Last week, if you watched it, we talked about how to use her knowledge and her experience in trauma and grief to actually help people deal with uh, COVID-19, the lockdown, and everything else that's going on as a result of the pandemic, right? I got her on this, this week because something had changed this week. I'm currently in California, and the governor has decided that today he's going to start opening uh, some retail stores. So the, the rules around lockdown are relaxing. And I actually had a text message from Starbucks saying, basically, Lee, get back in the store. We're going to open up again, um, social distancing. And um, Liza said to me, are you going to go? And I'm like, hell no, <laughs> I ain't going to Starbucks uh, to work during this time. Why? Uh, very simply for me, I don't spend a lot of time watching the TV, but when I do wander into the front room and my father-in-law is watching it, I CNN is like the Hunger Games right now. The death count is right in front of your face. So I can see how many people are contracting this thing and I can see how many people are dying and it's going up. So until it goes down, I am very, very wary about relaxing my standards that I put in place to keep me and my family safe and to keep me and my family from being a risk to other people, okay? Now, I'm well aware that I'm in a fortunate position that I can work from home. And, and as I discussed in the interview with Lisa, I'm a freelancer. So uh, part of the work that I do is um, working at live poker tournaments, interviewing people as an a interviewer, as a host and a producer, right? If that company, one of my companies, starts to run live tournaments again in the summer and people are still getting killed, I'm going to have to make the decision to go and do that because without that money, I, I won't be able to. Um, I won't be able to live. I won't be able to live, and I won't be able to support my family who can't. So I can't. I wouldn't be able to support my family, my wife, and my kids. But I wouldn't be able to support my wife's parents who can't work as a result of this as well. So. I understand that people are going to be having to make a decision between paycheck and health right now, uh, and that is a horrifying prospect. There's also a lot of very interesting mental, psychological things going on right now as we spend more time in our houses and we don't become afflicted by this thing. There's a strange thing. There's a strange easing off the gas that kind of happens, which I see mirror addiction that I wanted to talk to Lisa about. And also Lisa has a vast amount of experience in this. You know, she was um, in the World Trade Center in 1993 when the bombings happened. So she is um, 
you know, she got through that, fortunately, and she's able to talk with some authority about how people get through mass horrific issues like this and then have to go back to normalcy. Um, I, I remember when we had the bombings on the tube and in, on the bus in uh, in London, think, and, and I wasn't even in London. I'm like two hours away in Cardiff. But, you know, I was thinking to myself, am I ever going to get on a tube train again? And then, you know, I just said to myself, well, yeah, I am. Like, I cannot be ruled by that fear. But if I lived in London and I was commuting on a daily basis through those routes, I would have come to the same decision, but it would have been a much harder process to go through. So we're all on a different individual mission. We're all, this is all affecting us very differently. But I just wanted to get together, Lisa, and have another conversation about the fact that we all, whether we like it or not, currently right now, our life, our lifespan, our life energy, someone somewhere is putting a dollar figure on it or a pound figure because they're doing the risk assessments and saying, okay, we have to get the economy back together. People are going to have to die in order for us to get back together again. We've, whatever we think about that decision, we're in the middle of it. We're going to have to deal with it. It's going to affect it very lightly that some of us will go back to work or lacks our standards because we'd be, we feel we're being coerced or we have to, or we even make a decision to do that and we'll lose, loss, we'll lose loved ones as a result. So it's a very, very difficult moment for everybody on this planet. And uh, the more discourse we have about it, the better. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to talk about with Lisa, which we touched upon towards the end, but I'm just going to talk about it here now because it's so important, is there is no time there has been no time in my 45 years on this planet from a global perspective, because I know in, individually we have our own issues, but from a global perspective, have I seen the need and the urgency of need to find support, to find like-minded people who you can talk to, who you can trust and have security with, to educate yourself, to be physically fit, to be mentally fit and to be finding joy and epic meaning and purpose in the most harrowing of circumstances. There's never been a time like this ever. And I would have assumed, especially by opening the doors in uh, 1000 Days Sober for free and saying, hey, if money's an issue for you, come on board, that people would have blown the doors down. And that hasn't happened. In fact, the opposite has happened. People have stopped posting. People have stopped coming. People have stopped turning up. People have stopped getting the support that they had pre-pandemic. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a set of choices and decisions which terrifies me, quite frankly, because if you look at the stats out there right now on how use of alcohol and alcohol addiction and drugs and is, is like on the rise and the obviousness that post this pandemic, there are going to be so many more people isolated, so many more people destitute, so many more people lonely, so many more people grieving, so many more people wanting to numb, so many more people with worsened mental health issues that things like AA, 1000 Days Sober, 
This Naked Mind, The Tempest, and I could go on and on and on and on, become even more paramount. So resistance right now will be telling you that you don't need 1,000 Days Sober or Strive, that you don't need to do these things, that it's easier to push your way to just, just, you know, just watch Netflix and just curl up in a ball and just you don't have the capability or the power or the courage or anything to do this. I get it, right? I get it. I speak to people on a daily basis who are suffering from this, but I urge you to try through any means possible to break through this and get through the other side, to reach out and get support, to talk to people about what you're experiencing and what you're thinking about. It's really important now more than ever. Okay. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to Lisa Dinhofer. Um, At the end of this podcast, there will be for you listeners an exclusive set of show notes that we've just started to create. They're an ama- they're amazing resource. There will also be a full transcript of this conversation so you can read it instead of listening to it. And there will be a workbook as well, uh, which you can complete, which will um, really help you out um, around this issue of trauma, grief, getting back into society, mental health. There'll be a workbook for you. So all you need to do and once you've listened to this, uh, is get over to www.1000daysober.com. Uh, give us your email address, and we will provide you with those resources. Uh, show notes, a uh, workbook, and a transcription uh, so you can read uh, what we are talking about. So without further ado, I'll leave you with the capable hands of Lisa Dinhofer. Lisa Dinhofer, we must stop meeting like this. I know. Or maybe we should always continue meeting like this. I know. It, it might be actually a very healthy habit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I'm in California. Where are you actually? You're in California, right? I, no, I'm, I'm uh, in the metro D.C. area. Ah, okay, you're in D.C. So I'm all the way on the other side of the country. Well, Governor, Governor Newsom here in California is starting to open up the, the state a little bit today. I don't know what's happening with your state. Are they relaxing any uh, lockdown protocols there? Uh, Really not. Unfortunately, we are not seeing a decline in our death rate. We're 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 still pretty um, high in in the the death rate and the infection rate. So, of course, that changes every day. So I'm not aware of today um, changes in lockdown. But again. It, it changes so quickly, but I haven't heard anything as of today. Now, next week, it could be something different. Yeah, I'm the same. I, I, I haven't uh, been paying too much attention to it other than, you know, people talking in the house about what's going on. And um, that's why I heard that today um, Governor Newsom was going to start opening areas up because obviously my father-in-law, who we talked about last week, he's 78, he's a tailor, he's desperate to get right. back into work. Right. Um, you know, and I want to ask you, I'll, I'll tell you about my own personal circumstances and I want to ask you a question related to it. So <clears throat> Liza said to me this morning, thinking about going Julie's for swimming tomorrow, uh, which is her sister-in-law, lives in Santa Clarita, her sister lives in Santa Clarita. Do you want to come or not? Because last week we went to a uh, family get-together at their house for one of the nephew's uh, birthdays. And I... I didn't even take a mask. I just assumed we would all be so far away from each other. It would be untrue. Probably just sat in our cars, like talking to each other from car to car, like we've done in the past. When I got there, it wasn't like that. You know, people were 
sitting down together. They started off with masks and then the masks come off. And and the argument was, well, you know, we're all family. We all know that we're self-containing and self-isolating. None of us know that we're at risk. So things have got to get back to normal. Why not do it with family? And I felt really uncomfortable around it. Like I uh, I wasn't prepared for it. And then then I dropped my boundaries. And it was in, it was incredible how quickly I dropped them. I just I had I I could have just said okay uh, I'm just going to get back in a car you you look get on with it and I'm I'm uh, just going to stay safe but I feel a little helpless about it because obviously the people who I share a house with would still be there so it's kind of irrelevant I might as well be there and then so then when Liza said about going swimming I said to her we really need to have a conversation about whether we're relaxing our boundaries or not now given what's going on because. The way I see things and what I'm picking up when I look at the telly as I walk through the front room, although they're relaxing the standards and allowing more people to go out, the death rate is still increasing. People are still dying. Nothing For me, nothing's changed since right. lockdown, right? So so why is it all of a sudden that's pre-lockdown, we're all like, fuck, right? Like, dad, mom, you cannot go out of the house. You're high risk. Like, just tell us anytime you need anything, we'll go to it. And now all of a sudden we're like, where's dad? He's at the hardware store for the third time today. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and, and so I'm thinking that with her dad going back to work, her, her church will open soon as well. And then her mom will go to church. So I know you went through a, a horrific experience with 9-11 where people must have been terrified to kind of leave the house. And that's how people are going to be experiencing. And I'm not terrified. I just don't know what the best is to do for my family. And fortunately, I don't suffer a great deal of stress and anxiety as a result of thinking about this. I can cope with my body can cope with it. Right. But the people out there who are drinking, the people out there that have not developed these uh, abilities to feel and, and numb through one addiction or another, how did you get back to normal? How did the city get back to normal? And, how, and what advice could you give to people who are going through similar things that I am and worse right now? Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. So in terms of um, where we started in terms of the boundaries and the rationale that, well, we're just getting together with family. It's okay. We, we know that we're all safe. We haven't been going out. Unless no one in all of those households have not been leaving the house to get food, to do anything. You don't know that. Okay. So that is a rationalization that we're seeking so that we can do kind of what we want to do. And that is again, congregate. So I'm not saying don't congregate what I'm saying. I'm calling into question the rationalization because clinically it's inaccurate. If yeah. absolutely no one in any of those households have been leaving the household, then that's fine. But typically there's one person leaving the household to get food or, or something else. So that's an exposure. And if you want to get really technical, yep, they could be wearing a mask and gloves, but that's not a 100% fail safe. And technically you know, it might take up to two weeks for that person to develop symptoms if they were exposed or, you know, something like that. And then, of course, we have the whole issue about asymptomatic cases. And that's the really scary part of this. The asymptomatic cases and how long into being asymptomatic are you still shedding the virus? And uh, these are things we really don't know yet. There, There is so much that we do not know yet about this virus. And at the same time, there's growing pressure 
uh, being put on our lawmakers, but also on each other to, okay, look, we have to get back to life. We have to get back to our, you know, our, our jobs. We can't live like this forever. And so the impatience and the escalating lack of self-regulation is starting to create social pressure yeah. within families and, and with each other. And this notion of you're being too rigid, you're just being overly anxious, you know, families are going to start having these conversations when they begin deciding if they feel safe or not. Can I and, just, uh, add something to that as well uh, to just give a, a greater context? Social pressure <clears throat> through text messaging and yep. uh, by verbal communication, yep. by almost like... Um, like it happens with drinking, non-drinking, with the kind of like the it's like a it's almost like a form of shaming. Like uh, it's like a really yeah, that's what I was just going to say a form of shaming. But there's a, something else I noticed as well to add to that, uh, and then you you can continue. Is that when I went to the garden, I put myself to the other side of the garden with my daughter, and then and nobody said anything to me, but because everybody else was around the dinner table. I felt a social pressure without anybody even just the environment was a social pressure. I just wanted to add that in there. Because you're now doing something outside of your tribal unit, Mm. right? You're, you're a tribal unit sitting at the, at the table and there is a pressure, particularly if elders at that tribal unit at that table are saying, come on, do this, don't do that. Right. So that's a microcosm example of this uh, social pressure. And then, of course, we have the larger examples of people demonstrating in the streets, intimidating other people who don't agree with them, um, going through with acts of violence that we've now seen break out in so many areas. That is absolutely heartbreaking and a beautiful example of lack of self-regulation. And this comes from that adaptive challenge of what we talked about last time. We are not having a discrete event. We, we are not like September 11th. It was one day and right away we were into recovery. The crisis part of this is still evolving and we're still in that. We're not in the aftermath yet. And so the fatigue with being in this crisis mode and coping with the crisis mode is really beginning to express itself through uh, mental health challenges, social behavior, self-regulation, you know, all of those things. So when you ask about, you know, how long does it take to get back to a normal, I will tell you that um, in addition to living through 9-11, several years earlier in 1993, I worked on the 79th floor of the World Trade Center, the tower that was bombed in February of 1993. Wow. And your question really goes more to that because in September 11th, of course, the towers were obliterated. There was nothing to go back to. Mm. In 1993, I distinctly remember that was my first exposure to uh, trauma in the workplace. And it was a prescient tutorial, if you will, of um, do's and don'ts as far as leadership and how to lead people through that, as well as the relational disruptions that happen when you have a traumatic event like that in the, in the workplace. And it took three weeks for the building to be cleaned and, and for us to be given the uh, okay to actually go in back into the building. And uh, that 
day uh, started a terrible time in the company of exactly this kind of social pressure. A lot of people got stuck in the lobby. They could not physically bring themselves to enter the elevator. Now, you're on the ground floor and you're going to the 79th floor and already that elevator ride, you had to get used to that elevator because in the first month, your, your stomach is still in the lobby when you reach the 79th floor. You had to just physically get used to that. For a lot of people, they could not get into the elevator and they were stuck in the lobby and having panic attacks and, and, and you know, really in a great deal of distress. And after about the third day of this, the leadership of the company I worked for at the time began threatening them that if they didn't come into work, meaning get in the, in the elevator and, and get to the workplace, that they were going to start having their, their pay docked. And when that didn't work, because obviously if you're in a sheer on panic attack, because you've just, you're being triggered, you have trauma triggers of the last time you're in this building and you didn't think you were going to get out. Yeah. And what it took to get out of that building from the 79th floor after being through a bombing, <clears throat> um, having your pay docked, <laughs> that's now not the worst thing in the world. Um, so when that didn't happen, uh, leadership began threatening their jobs. And of course, people might have been the primary, you know, head of household and healthcare benefits and all of that. So uh, people began, you know, dragging themselves or allowing themselves to be pulled on to that elevator and getting into the workplace and then completely losing it once they're in the workplace, having panic attacks. And then we're told, you're not going to talk about what went on. We're not going to talk about this. We're not going to talk about how we're feeling. We're just going to get on with it. We have to get on with work. We've lost three solid weeks of work and we can't afford this and we need to get on with it. And so you're expected to sit down at your job, at your desk and get on with it. And of course, it had a devastating impact. That very authoritarian, obedience-driven leadership style wasn't working anyway. The morale in my company at that time was really bad to begin with. But that style of leadership during a crisis fails miserably, right? It totally fails. And people began resigning. Productivity just went under the carpet. And eventually, uh, this company uh, went bankrupt. And I am convinced that the way they handled this had a direct impact on a portion of the company, uh, they split the company up, they sold off one portion of it, and the rest of it went bankrupt. And I'm convinced that the way they handled this contributed to that. We're not in the recovery phase of this yet. So approaching reopening and going back into the workplace and going to the shopping mall and, you know, I'm already seeing evidence of real friction around this. I visited a, a grocery store near me yesterday to to quick up to, to pick up some quick supplies. And, you know, they have the spaces marked off. So you stand in line six feet apart and you're allowed in kind of like one at a time or a few at a time because they're controlling the number of people in the store. You have to wear a face mask in my state. And there was a woman in front of me, an elderly woman in front of me, arguing with the store manager who was standing outside uh, you know, running of this, arguing with him 
uh, that this is unconstitutional and this isn't necessary and really giving this man a hard time Mm. and complaining that, well, in Virginia, we don't have to do this and blah, 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 blah. And I looked at her and I said, well, it's required here. You know, deal with it. These people in stores right now are really stressed out. And as I was checking out of this store, I asked her how she's doing. And she looked at me and she said, not very well. And a lot of my colleagues at checkout, we're really stressed out. I mean, we are really anxious and scared. Mm. And so I went to the leadership of that store and said, I, I can help you with this. And let's, let's talk about my doing maybe a webinar for, for your staff. We, there's no clear demarcation that we're in the safe zone yet, but we're being pushed to go back outside before we have things like effective validated tests and a vaccine that would provide a tremendous amount of assurance to people that I think would really reduce this relational scratchiness that I'm seeing happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think in, in short, it's going to be a mess. It, it's yeah. going to be a mess. And people are, we're, we're not all in the same place. We don't all have the same information coming at us. Every state is different. And I think that it's going to get down to deciding what is best for ourselves and our families and to really avoid the impulse towards pressuring other people to see this as you do or pressuring them to do something they're not comfortable with and being respectful of where people's boundaries are right now for themselves and their families. You don't know who has an immunosuppressed child at home or who's caring for elderly parents or who have other issues that complicate their health status. We have to be patient and empathetic and compassionate and deeply respectful of other people's needs and choices right now. And we're at a place of reduced tolerance for frustration, right? Our fuses are growing shorter and shorter. So that's going to make that even harder. In many ways, this whole episode that we're going through and I've been going through for the last couple of months, it really does remind me of addiction in so many ways. It's so so many parallels to alcohol addiction. So like earlier on, for example, you said about the rationalization that occurred when we all met for dinner and the intellectualization of, of that, mm-hmm. right? So ra- rationalization, intellectualization is a defense mechanism around right. addiction, right? Like, right. you know, I am okay if I only have one drink every now and then. Right. It's the same as I am okay if I only go to the store uh, this one time, right? And Right. And of course, of course, it's wrong because like we had a couple of um, tree cutters around the garden to cut some trees. And I had to tell my father-in-law to put his mask on because the other two had masks on. And that's really uncomfortable. If you if they've got masks on and you haven't, that's just that's not right. Like Right. And um, we're all going to start calling each other out. I, I'm yeah. already it's on the street. If you're not wearing a mask, some people feel entitled right now to be very prescriptive with other people. And they feel entitled to tell other people what to do. Um, And other people are feeling extremely put upon by being accosted by strangers or even people in their own family. And this is going to increase this relational scratchiness 
that was already a pretty severe level already in our country with what's going on. And I think this is another added layer that is particularly combustible because the genesis of this is fear. Before we were scratchy with each other because, you know, we have different opinions about all different kinds of things. But now this is coming from a place of fear. And that is a very powerful driver for irrational behavior, violence, very um, unempathetic, uncompassionate, insensitive behavior. And fear is probably the greatest rationalizer, right, Mm. for doing what we feel we want to or telling other people what to do. And I'm watching the numbers and I'm watching the reports come out about the uptick in alcohol and drug use and suicide. And I am growing increasingly concerned about what's coming because from an addiction standpoint and a mental health care standpoint, the fallout from this hasn't even happened yet. What is coming, the wave of what's coming with how well or not how well people have been able to cope with this is going to be a second pandemic slamming us in a country that has dismantled, for all intents and purposes, its mental health care system. And of course, within that, drug and alcohol treatment options and availability and, and everything else uh, is not given the money that it needs. Um, insurance companies don't want to pay for it. Uh, and we are facing um, an, another wave of a pandemic secondary to COVID uh, that I don't think most people even even realized yet. But I, no. I hear mental health care professionals screaming in the bit in the abyss about I had, I had a conversation with uh, John about that this morning you know the strive coach John you know and John was saying he can't he can't help but get angry and question the lengths that the world has gone to to deal with this in terms of lockdown and stuff right so whenever he hears that opinion people around him are going to get really angry right because well, you know, they, they think, what's the other? He thinks he, he doesn't think this is justified. But if you listen to him a bit more, it's not that he doesn't think it's justified. He's worried, like you said, about the collateral damage yep. of what will happen when we shut ourselves off from society and how that collateral damage will result in another pandemic with more people getting battered at home, more people being right. abused at home, more people getting lonely and isolated and committing suicide, et cetera, et cetera. So, so then you start questioning, is this right? Is this right? You know, and then, and I guess what you've got to do is you've, you've, uh, you've got to, you've got to make, you've got to make your own decision. You've got to take the information southern and make your own decisions. That's really tough. Right. But before I get to that, one other thing that I just wanted to touch upon that I think is I, I've seen happen around me and it reminds me of addiction, is as time goes on, just time in itself, nothing else, just time. When you're at home and time is just going by and nothing is happening, like nobody's getting a sneeze or a cold or anything, even those little ailments, like my daughter is always sick, but now she's not going to school, she's not sick, right? So, So now all of a sudden we've got this kind of like skewed view that everything's all right. Right. It doesn't matter that everybody's dying outside there because we can't, we're not, that's not our world. That's not the map that we've got. 
Right. So, so all of a sudden you start to feel like you can take chances and you do relax your boundaries. And it reminds me a little bit of, um, I really must stop drinking alcohol. I really must stop drinking alcohol. And then you stop drinking for three months and you're like, I've nailed this. Like, this isn't, this isn't so bad. I, I've got this. I, I can have a drink. And, right. and, then it, and then it's like, oh, maybe I could just drink on weekends. Maybe I could right. drink on weekends, especially the cake. And then before you know it, the speed at which you're back there. So right. you know, it's, I was saying to John this morning, it really is a case of everybody's going to have a different experience and a different view. So my view is as it is today. But if Zia ended up dying because her dad went to the hardware store, contracted coronavirus and brought it home and gave it to him, we found out that she couldn't handle it. I'd be very angry, and I'm pretty sure my rules, my personal rules around how I handle this would change dramatically. If, if we were all in hospital tomorrow, like my rules would change. My, my yeah. reality is different. So I think we have to li- literally do like, we have to treat ourselves like a little bit of a business and do like a mini risk assessment. And, and that's the <laughs> conversation I'm going to be having with Liza later on is, okay, on this, whether or not we're going to go swimming on tomorrow, what are our rules? What? What are we willing to do? What, how far are we willing to stretch this risk? And the, and the question here is people are forgetting because this is not a discrete event and the crisis is still unfolding. This is temporary. It's not that you're never going to be able to go to the pool or you're never going to be able to go to the golf course or you're never going to. It's temporary and it doesn't feel that way. But when you look at the totality of your life, it is. It's temporary. And seriously, is going to the golf course or the hardware store or whatever, is it really that important, more important than your health? And because we can't see this, right? It's not like coronavirus is outside of our door holding up a sign saying, I'm still here. Because we can't see it, We tend not to have a healthy respect for what we can't see, and we minimize what we can't see, and we begin to get into the magical thinking of, it won't happen to us, or it won't happen to me. Well, that that, that magical thinking, all right, let's focus on that. I think it's quite important. Obviously, I'm just using my own personal experience here because I'm not an expert in this. That magical feeling as if it won't happen to me has been inside me since I was born. Like I, I never think I'm going to get mugged. I never think I'm going to get killed. I never think my kid's going to get stolen. I never think that my house is going to be on fire. I never think I'm going to be burgled. I never think I'm going to be raped. I never think I'm going to get coronavirus. I also, I think if I do get coronavirus, I'm going to be okay. Like All these things in my head. It's not that I don't worry about my kid being stolen. I went for a walk this morning and she, she's got a little short dress on and she's, you know, she's running away there and there's these three grown men on the side of the road going hi nothing right i've watched too many serial killer movies i'm like oh there's a pedophile ring there i where I, I start thinking about it i quickly i quickly dismiss it right there is something about my thinking that is kind of like it's natural within me it feels natural that these things aren't going to happen to me what you're referring to is something we, we've talked about before, and that is the assumptive world. We all have an assumptive world. And in our assumptive world, we weave a mythology about how much control over things we really think we have 
And we tend to overestimate the number of positive things that will happen in our life and underestimate the number of negative things. And we have this kind of mythology that, again, if I eat my broccoli and I wear my seatbelt and I'm nice to old people, nothing bad is going to happen to me or the people I love. Now, I know cognitively that bad things happen, but they happen to other people. And even though I know it could happen to me in my assumptive world, it's not going to. Mm -hmm. And if you have an inherently more optimistic viewpoint, um, it can really increase that element of your uh, assumptive world. And what happens is when our assumptive world is violated or shattered because we have a very unexpected loss, you know, something really bad happens. Uh, we get a terrible diagnosis or somebody we love dies unexpectedly. That assumptive world is violated. It's shattering to have that assumptive world violated. And the scariest thing about that is we realize, oh, I didn't have the kind of control really in life I thought I did. And it could happen again. Right. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. And this also this rationalization about the masks, um, it, you know, it's really, really uncomfortable to wear the mask. And my response to that is, yeah, and it's really uncomfortable being a patient in an ICU unit on a ventilator. Mm. So which discomfort do you want to choose? Yeah. The temporary discomfort of wearing a mask. When, when you're out in the store, that's going to last, of what, an hour? Or the, the really more severe discomfort of being in hospital, in the ICU, on a ventilator, gasping for air. But choose your discomfort. I want to talk about something else related to that, because, again, it's linked to alcohol addiction. When people, when this first started breaking out, my wife was ahead of the curve. We were supposed to go back to the U.K., Right. Everything was running all right. The flights were okay. Nothing. This was happening, but it was happening in China and it just started to hit other parts of the world. By this time, Liza had bought a lot of masks for us to wear on a plane. And she bought them as a precaution because she, she was insisting she, she, she didn't want to go. I, I had to go, um, but she was insisting that she didn't want to go, right? You know, she was really, really questioning it, especially Zia. And um, she buys these masks. And I said, did you get one for me? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, that's a waste of money because I ain't wearing a mask, right? Now, let's unpack that a little bit. Whenever I, before COVID, the only time I saw anyone wearing a mask was, um, would be Asian, uh, Asian descent, right? I'm Asian as well. But the only people I would see wearing a mask were Asian. We would see it a lot in poker. So we go to poker tournaments and a lot of the Asian poker players, they would wear their masks, right? Now, the ignorant part of me never viewed that as a health thing. My, my ignorant part of me somehow went to a space that said it was unnecessary. And my personality type, because I, I get into this self-centeredness, it's all about me. It, it was almost like, well, you think that there's something wrong with me, that you have to wear that mask. And, 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 and it became a status thing. It became an us and them thing. It became a, I'm not going to be someone like that who wears a mask. And then I remember afterwards when it all really kicked off and we were on lockdown, uh, just before lockdown, actually, going to Vons and wearing gloves, but not the mask. Now I'm going in and wearing a mask. But that reminded me really strongly of not being able to quit alcohol 
Because if I did, my status within my tribal hierarchy would have been affected because I wouldn't be like them. Right. I would be like them. So I'm talking right. about I'm talking about dominant, non-dominant groups. I'm talking about, yeah, like it's not racism. I don't I don't look at it and 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 or, or xenophobic. It, it just so happens that everybody who was wearing masks was Asian in my experience, right? And I'm Asian myself. It's not that, but it's definitely linked to status. It's definitely linked to a personality trait of mine around self-centeredness or something, which is not good, you know. Um, but I I would guess that right now there are more men likely to get this or spread this because they are unwilling to wear gloves and wear masks in public for no other reason that they're a man. Well, I think if I remember what I read recently is that um, uh, more men are testing positive and they're having a harder time with this. But you can't just look at that one variable. You also have to look at things that we know are starting to complicate that, and that's obesity and age and, and pre-existing. But to talk about the masks, um, in Asian cultures, uh, the wearing of the mask is for a very different reason than here. And Americans don't realize really why in Asian cultures they wear the mask. And it really started back in, you know, avian flu and the SARS and because they've dealt with more pandemics than we have. The cultural standard in Asian countries for wearing a mask is to be protective of others. Mm. It is not to be protective of myself. I'm wearing this mask for the collective good. It's a completely different concept, right? The collective good. There's a higher value in Asian cultures on being part of the collective and the collective good. In Western countries, I think probably the U.S. is off the charts in this notion of individualism and rugged, you know, that, that rugged individualism um, that to me is not so rugged, but it's more about self-absorption. And there's not nearly the value of doing something for the collective good, right? Um, to, to be willing to, to experience a sacrifice for the collective good. Americans have no self-regulation around that really at all. I mean, it's really difficult to get Americans to um, accept being told no, um, because it's good for the collective whole. And, and that having a higher value than just I want what I want. And in Western cultures, and again, in, in the US, I think people wear masks to protect themselves against others. Right? So it looks like we're doing the same thing but the concept behind why we're doing it is very different from Eastern to Western cultures. And I think um, Western culture really misunderstands why, why uh, people in, the, in Eastern cultures wear these masks and create narratives, inaccurate narratives uh, around that. And the notion of men um, not wanting to wear masks more than women, um, I've been reading things lately around uh, they interpret it as a sign of weakness, uh, that I'm fearful, um, that I'm not as brave as, you know, some other guy, this sense of being immune or impervious to yeah. uh, something. You know, I need to sh have this show of strength and look at me. I'm, I'm stronger and braver than you are. And we see a lot of that in these horrible protests 
that uh, have been happening around the country where people showing up, men mostly in these protests, not wearing a mask and having, you know, very serious firearms with them and screaming in the face of other people, asserting their rights to not wear a mask or, or whatever else. But it's all about me, 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 me. There's nothing there about wanting to care or value about the collective well-being. No, and, and, and that, I'm using myself as a, I mean, when you, when you were saying about Americans, then not, um, you know, American men, you were talking about them. Straight away in my head, I got this picture of this big rugged guy. He's got a cigarette in his mouth and a bottle of beer in his hand. He's got a big high-powered rifle in the other, and he's standing next to this enormous, massive car that could fit a hundred people in it, which I've right. got a million of them down the down the driveway here. Um, that just blows shit into the into the atmosphere. And right. it's just like, I'm okay, Jack. Like no, right. you know, no, nobody's gonna get into my house, type of thing, you know? And right. I right. what I want to like for people listening, I, I um, want to make sure that I'm not making excuses for my behavior. I want everyone to know that I'm very aware of my self-centeredness, right? Uh, I am. Um, but I'm also aware that I didn't wake up one day and decide to be self-centered. It's, it's abhorrent to me. It's a part of me that I don't like, that I want to get rid of. But you need to ask yourself, where did it come from? Right. And, and to me, it's too easy to blame my mom and to blame my dad, right? For me, it is the addictive system of life that we live in. Like life is an addictive system which mirrors individual addiction. That, that the problems that we have at an individual addictive level, they're, they're symptomatic with what's going on in the world. You know, like I, I've been writing recently about dishonesty, for example. Most addicts are pretty good at being dishonest either to themselves or to other people, right? But where does that come from? Well, we breed, we, we, we tell our children that being dishonest is wrong, but really to get on in life, the world gives them the feedback that you have to be dishonest. You have to lie. You have to cheat. You have to bend the rules. And, and that is the, that's the pressure that is, that is put on people. So, I, I think that we're now seeing that when, when the world has a disaster like we're having right now, we see the mere fact that we weren't ready for this shows that the addictive system, not even the world, like the biggest, most mightiest country in the world didn't have enough PPE. It, well, well, it's we, an arrogance, right? It, right it, it's, it's, it's an arrogance that... We don't have to prepare. We'll deal with it when it comes. But it's also this mindset of not seeing the value of investing in preparation as well as reduction versus always paying for it on the back end through, through damage control. And, you know, to use you as an example, what you just said, I don't know if it's a matter really of blaming um, parents, but... I do think that children from a very early age um, emulate what they see and they take their cues from the adults around them. And so it becomes part of their personality and part of being in that tribe. And then we go out into the world using these behaviors that we've learned in the house and these values that we absorbed or, or not. And we go out into the world 
And we just move through the world doing what we saw done and emulating. Even if we don't like what we saw done, somehow we still repeat that behavior unless we take serious self-reflection time to correct, you know, that within ourselves. And our culture rewards bad behavior. It does. It does. Our culture rewards putting yourself above somebody else, um, taking for yourself and not leaving enough for anybody else behind. Uh, Our culture rewards that. You go to a place like Denmark um, and that kind of behavior will get you shunned. In, In Denmark and Nordic countries, putting yourself above someone else, being a show off, um, wanting to take more than what others have, that is not part of the culture there. And it is not embraced. And you're, you're not going to be invited to a lot of people's homes <laughs> no. uh, where in those cultures, connection through terms like Huga and in Sweden, Fika, which is kind of the nickname of coffee break, but it means collective restoration. And it's something that happens every single day in companies to build social capital, right? So they had no problem uh, sharing coffee virtually because that is valued in the workplace every single day, right? And collectively joining together for the purpose of being together, that's kind of a loose uh, description of Huga um, in, in, in Denmark and, and other countries, They understand the purpose of connection. And when you invite people to your house and they'll say, come over and let's do Huga. You know, it's not that the TV's on and all that. They're playing games with each other. They're interacting with each other. It is to be together and with each other. So I'd love to see, you know, a study of how well maybe the countries in in the Netherlands did with this social distancing versus us yeah yeah. they're certainly doing better in terms of flattening the the curve and as you see again um denmark countries in the netherlands new zealand there's a strong value of the collective good so they when they went into lockdown there wasn't these big arguments. People did it. They, they did it. They cooperated. They complied. And so they've had a much better time managing the disease because people cared and wanted to comply because of the collective good. You, you don't see that behavior here. It's just not part of the, the American DNA culture. Mm, a, good, a good example of your... Um about how the world rewards um, bad behavior, which links into my belief about how the world is this addictive system and dishonesty is a part of that, is I had a guest on, I think it was Renat Strauhofer, um, and she talked about how amazing it is for a person to tell their employer or a new employer, I even have it on his CV, I am a recovered addict. Because to tell them that you're a covered addict shows that you have the tenacity, the courage, the confidence, the willing to be vulnerable. You have all these amazing qualities because you went through something that was truly horrific and horrendous, but you conquered it. Yet you are encouraged by society to never, ever share that. 
to be dishonest and to tell people that you have no problems, that you've never had an issue because you won't get the job, right? So, I mean, that's just like one ex- one example. Um, and the other thing on he said about, you know, our kids reflecting our behavior. Like, we've really got to be switched on about this. My, my daughter, she's three, right? And she's always like looking in the mirror and she'll, she'll put a dress on and she'll put the, the sleeves down and she'll go like this and she's doing all this. And I'm thinking, where did she get that from? Like, my wife doesn't do that. <laughs> she doesn't watch TV. And then, um, you know, Eliza will say, well, it's you to me. And I'm like, you're kidding. I never look in the mirror. This morning, as I, I give her a toothbrush, and I tell her to brush her teeth. And as she's doing it, I, I start looking in the mirror and I start plucking gray hairs, right? I don't, I don't think it's a vanity thing. I just like finding gray hairs and plucking them out of my head and my mustache up my nose or whatever I can find them. It's like a little hobby of mine. I like it. But then I realize that she's watching me and I am the person who's always looking in the mirror. But I had no idea that it was me looking in the mirror. So being more aware, strive and 1000 days sober and the conversations we have about being human, about being parents, about being vulnerable, about sharing these, what you might see, you might feel are like nonsense. Why do I want to hear about Lee's story about him plucking his gray hairs? Just talking about these things feeds conversations that gets you to be more introspective and gets you to be more aware of your behavior. So you can say, I am being self-centered. You can ask, why don't I want to wear a mask? All these things will help you when it comes to making that decision, which we're all going to be faced with right now. You know, should I leave the house or not? And I just want to lead on this and then uh, pass it I over. I think to another you. way of maybe looking at um, Zia's behavior when she's um, looking in the mirror is a very positive expression on her part that she likes what she sees. She has a very positive view of herself. She likes what she sees and she feels very uninhibited in front of you or anybody else um, to play with what she sees, which children do all the time. Children love making funny faces and they like aping and and primping and doing all of these behaviors to be silly. Um, This is a child that's happy. This is a child that feels free. She likes what she sees in the mirror. Um, I think it's really very healthy And you'd be surprised at what children pick up um, looking at their parents. Um, I'm sure that when Liza gets dressed before she leaves the house, she at least looks at herself in the mirror and, you know, checks to make sure she doesn't have lipstick on her teeth or whatever. And children pick up on that and the little snippets of TV that she might see or... It could could just be an advert, right? Like You know, women in movies do that, right? um, And it's really not... I think it's a good thing if we're noticing in your daughter that she, when she looks at herself, um, there's not positive expressions or she won't even look at herself in the mirror. I'd be worried about that. Right. Right. Balance it then Lee. Stop stressing so much. Yeah. You know, um, enjoy, enjoy her, enjoy her personality, enjoy who she is. Um, and, and children have this wonderful, they give themselves permission to be silly. They don't even see it as being silly. They're just being kids. They're just being themselves. Okay. Food for thought, definitely. Um, what was I going to say? Give me a sec. Okay, that was it. So on going back out into the world, 
So we're headed into a time of over the top fear. And we're going to be faced with some really tough problems. And one of the things that concerns me, um, if people are in leadership positions, if we begin testing people, our employees, and someone tests positive for antibodies, uh, people are now starting to um, be concerned that they're going to be asked not to return. They're going to lose their job. And... Is it an invasion of their health, um, their health status? Um, we're not used to going into the workplace and, you know, taking a, a swab or a blood, you know, doing that. I mean, we do it for drugs and alcohol, but not necessarily as a health status. Mm. And will it create an us versus them thing about, well, you had it and you have the antibodies, so do I need to be afraid of being around you versus people who never tested positive? I think we're headed into some really sketchy waters and people's fear about the resurgence, the upsurge of this again, which I'm sorry to say history tells us is going to happen. Mm. Um, And so everyone returning to work because they feel this pressure to do that before we've really gotten the medical uh, aspect of this under control, like what happened in 1918, I think we're almost bringing on our own uh, difficulties because we're not committed to being patient for as long as we need to be. And to go back to something you said before, because we were so unprepared, we don't have the systems in place to support people the way we need to be supported so that we can be patient. And that is in other countries, again, I think it was in Denmark and, uh, and in the UK, people just automatically are receiving 75 to 80% of their salary. There, there's none of this framework of deciding who's deserving and going through the these circle of hell application systems, people are being taken care of financially. We don't have that here. If our system uh, could somehow get its act together and support people financially the way they need to be supported so that they can stay home, uh, we would be in a much better place. But we don't have any kind of system Um, preemptively in place. We are so unprepared for something like this and we're unprepared for handling the disruption of a large unexpected event. Whether it's a virus, whether it is, God forbid, a a terrorist attack that, that upends a city, we just don't believe in putting preventive measures in place, investing in prevention, uh, we, we would much rather have to spend the money when we have to, but then it's always more expensive down the road and the damage is worse. Mm. It, reminds so, me, it reminds me when I worked on the railway, you'd always have to, before you did anything, you'd have to do um, a risk assessment. And if you look at London uh, Underground tubes, for example, there are some platforms you cannot get onto the rail because it's, it's just, it's, a, it's like a glass partition. Right. And, it, and it opens perfectly with a train. Now, that's like a perfect system to stop suicides. Right. So, so you say, well, why isn't that at every station? And it's because they've done the math in the risk assessment, and the likelihood of someone trying to commit suicide 
is not commensurate with the amount of money that you would have to spend. So you just, you, you put a dollar figure on life and yeah. you let people die. And Absolutely. It's, it's, it's the same on the railway when we make decisions on, on how, how far we go to protect our railway workers. No, oh, we're all right with one or two dying a year, right? I mean, that's what happens right. in the risk assessment. And that's what's going on now. I mean, for me, I'm fortunate at the moment that I can work from home. And because of that, I actually have not even been to the supermarket for a, a month. Now, if the people that, that uh, if some of my freelancers start running live poker tournaments again, which are a horrific breeding ground for this type of stuff, but if it happens again, um, I'm going to have to go because I, because I need that. I cannot live without that money. I cannot feed my family and, right. I, and I ain't relying on the government. Right. So, so what I'm saying, I guess, is for me, like my advice to myself is I'm not going out until I see something on the TV that tells me that this is this that the death number is going down, not up or plateauing. Right. Um, it's not just for me. Like I know I'm not in the age range that's particularly at risk, but I am currently living with two people in their seventies, and I don't want to give it to them. But if I do have to, and also with the if flights open up transatlantic, I will take the risk and go see my son because I haven't seen him for over six months. I right. will isolate myself when I'm over there, and I'll isolate myself when I come back. That's me. That's what I'm doing, you know. But if I had to go to work every day, if I had to, I'd have to. But I'd have to take really real precautions. I'd have to speak up if I felt that my lords and masters weren't putting our safety first. I wouldn't keep. I wouldn't keep quiet about it, you know. <laughs> Saying so that, a lot of people are going to be in the position of choosing um, their paycheck or their health. Because there are people who work in the workplace who are immunosuppressed, who are pregnant, who uh, take care of immunosuppressed children or, or elderly parents. And we're being collectively put in a position where we're being told, make the choice, your paycheck or your health. Mm. And that's putting people, it's a false question. You, we should never have to be making that decision, but we're being forced to make that decision because we did not have the systems in place to help us the way we need to be supported right now in order for us to be patient enough to, to whip this under control. Mm. So we're essentially being told we're going to reopen. And if we see, you know, confirmed cases and death spike, well, then we'll reclose. But so that means people got very sick and died. We had to reopen. Mm. And then all of a sudden we'll close when we see that. So, you know, what do you say to those families that your loved one, you know, had to serve as a sacrificial lamb? I, I, you know, I I think that that notion is, is horrific. And I don't necessarily think people are thinking that through because whenever they say we have to get back and we have to do the, they're never including themselves as being one of those people who will get really sick and maybe die or their own children. It's always somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we're, we're in for a hard time relationally. And I, and I think for people struggling with addiction issues, if they don't allow really intensive support into their lives to help them either maintain their sobriety or try to reach sobriety, I think they're going to pay a very heavy cost. 
and they have to allow it. They have to allow that support into their lives and they have to make the decision and not use this event as, well, this is just too much for me. I need to drink or drug or whatever it is you do until this is over. And then, then I'll make the decision when this is over. Yeah. It's just another rationalization. This this is the craziness of addiction in an addictive system, right? At the same time as a pandemic, right? Because if you use 1000 days sober and strive out a little community as a, as an example, and there's, there's a lot more, there's a lot more out there that they're bigger than us. But if you just use ours as an example, the advice that I would now give people as people are worrying about entering the workplace and going to see brothers and sisters and all that kind of stuff, my, my advice would be still continue to only go out when you absolutely have to. When you do, take all the precautions that we've read about and that we've been doing anyway. Uh, the other thing is, at, at all times, try to keep your, yourself as, as strong immune-wise as you can so like like eat well, exercise, et cetera, et cetera. Keep your mental health as tip-top as you can by finding creative things to do while you're at home. Um, really, really super important. Get, you know, stuff that you've never had the time to do before. Be grateful and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, here's the thing. For people struggling with addiction, alcohol and opioids and all of that, they are at higher risk of contracting this illness because they are already immunosuppressed. Right, yeah. Alcohol and drugs suppress your immune system. So you are at higher risk of contracting, and then um, you are at higher risk of not being able to fight this. Yeah, and yeah. particularly for people who abuse opioids, what happens there is it lowers your oxygen capacity to begin with. You're taking in less air. That's what those drugs do. It suppresses your breathing function. And so people who abuse those don't even realize necessarily they're short of breath until it gets really serious. Mm. And it's harder to treat biologically, medically, people who abuse alcohol and drugs because there's already damage on board. So if you are in that community you're taking proactive actions to build up your immunity and protect yourself because you are at higher risk. Mm. It, the, that is a fact and you need to accept it. And, and on that angle as well, you know, just to finish off was support. So loneliness and isolation, depression, suicidal tendencies, all that kind of thing. Like you need to get the support as much as you can. So all of those things that we talked about, so at Stry, then we opened up twice weekly meetings. We've allowed people to come on board free of charge. We're giving away all of our workshops for a month free. We've got we, we, we're putting on more stuff for people. We're doing everything we can to provide all those things for people. And guess what's happening right now in the middle of the pandemic? Everybody's running away. So everybody is isolating more. They're not using. The, the things that are there at their disposal, they're just, they're either isolating and running away from it, or they're finding things in their life that are more interesting, whatever it is. They're really, there's a struggle going on right now. And it surprised me, Lisa, I'll be honest. I thought this is going to be a time where we'll open up for free and a lot of people come in and get a lot of help. And what's happened is the opposite. Well, what, I, what I'm going to um, remark to that is, 
Um, that may also be a signal of depression and long-term coping of a non-finite loss um, creates coping fatigue. And so if people are in a place of coping fatigue, they become apathetic, depression, they're not necessarily going to reach for the things right in front of them that could help them. Mm. And this is the mental health challenge. Yeah. You can, you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make that horse drink. And when people are in a state of um, depression and extreme despair or sadness or anxiety, they're less likely to reach out. And that's the hard thing to watch when that happens to people that we love and care about and those people we know that are out there that we don't even know. And it's why that one-on-one -on -one contact Somebody calling someone else and looking at them and saying, come on now, you know, someone that they know that they have a personal relationship. I'm worried about you. I know that you're not saying this, but I'm worried that you're drinking or I'm worried that you're doing drugs or I'm worried that whatever. And I'd like you to be honest with me right now if you're doing that. But if you cannot, I want to make a contract with you that you are going to reach out and get some help. Because this is going to drown you before you even know you're drowning. And that personal connection right now with people is just so important to help pull them out of the hole of depression and isolation and anxiety and fatigue, mental fatigue. Yeah. And if you're listening to this, folks, Strive, wonderful people like Lisa, myself, we're all here to help people, to give you space, to let you talk, to give you advice if you want it, learn more skills. There's so much going on, 1,000 Days Sober, and so much going on at Stripe. So please, 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 as much as resistance is trying to drag you away from these things, try to fight it and, uh, and come on board. Uh, don't let money uh, be the thing that stops you because that's not stopping us bringing you on if you don't have any money right now, okay? So just reach out and go to www. 1000daysober.com and you'll find out how to get in touch with us. Lisa Dinoff, a pleasure as always. Really enjoyed having you on this week. Love it. You know I love it. Take, Take care, care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Alcohol Addiction Podcast. Now, before you run away, just a few things, okay? So, the next time we run the 1000 Day Sober Experience, our program that guides you and helps you to become 1,000 days sober. So that's 2.7 years, folks, right? It's the only long-term program in the world where we're with you constantly to help and guide you through the six stages of the Strive Model for Change. We get you through being stuck. We get you through thinking and the ambivalence around drinking alcohol. We get you through the research phase of making some change. We get you through the change we manage you through that change. And then after that, with alcohol in the rearview mirror, we help you to evolve, to live a fulfilled life, to do that incredibly important post-recovery work, which so many people, so many organizations out there dismiss or just don't even cover at all, right? So we got you back for 1,000 days. The next time we run an experience will be in July, but do not wait until then. The best thing that you can do right now is to get over to www.1000daysober.com and sign up to be a member of Strive today, okay? It is £40 a month subscription that includes 
the 1000 Days Sober Experience. It includes uh, online workshop, it includes online meetings, it includes guidance from our ambassadors, it includes one-on-one -on -one meetings with our incredible Strive coaches who are uh, skilled at a vast array of important elements of your life that are gonna drive up and increase your physical and mental health. And by joining now, you get used to the environment, you get used to the community, you get used to the people, and when, by the time July comes along, you'll be firing on all cylinders, kind of roaring to get into the 1000 Days Sober Experience. So do that today, really, really important. If you want to get the show notes for today, the show notes are exceptional, folks. You get the show notes from today's episode. You want to get a full transcription of today's episode. And you want to get a special workbook um, that will give you some, some fun and interesting questions based on today's episode that you can help that will um, one-up your life, right? Then get over to www.1000daysober.com. You will find the link there and sign up, give us your email address, and we will give you uh, we will give you these things free of charge, okay? And on that 40 pounds a month, if you do not have the money, if you are struggling financially, then email me at thetruthaboutalcohol at gmail.com and we'll figure something out. Do not let money get in your way of becoming 1,000 days sober. And just because we go 1,000 days sober, right? Don't be worried about that if you're not quite ready to quit yet. The first stage of the Strive Model for Change is called Stuck. The second stage is called Thought. And we do not expect you to stop drinking whilst you're doing that work. And that will take you a good four to five months. So you get a lot of grace. We will meet you where you're at in your addiction to alcohol. Don't worry about that, okay? We take on everybody. People who are desperately trying to stop drinking and people who stop drinking and they just want help putting their life back together, okay? Um, lastly, if you enjoyed listening to our Condition Podcast, then please rate and review it on your local provider whether that would be apple or soundcloud or whatever uh, just give us a nice review and some nice stars you can find us on instagram at 1000daysober.com or 1000daysober and you can find us on youtube 1000daysober as well all right take care yourselves folks ciao ciao